So if you um, missed last week, we kicked off a new series, and um, we kicked off a series in the book of James. We're going to be uh, in this series for a couple of months, and I have to address a problem that was brought to my attention after the service last week. It was suggested to me that it would have been much more apt if Pastor James had have kicked off the series in James. So I do apologize for that. We'll circle back to it in about 10 years' time, make sure he's still around then, and we will fix that error. I can't change it now. Um, but Pastor James is preaching next week um, on part three of this series, so make sure you're here for that and you can get your enjoyment out of James preaching from James, all right? But we did kick off last week and we've called this series A Blueprint for Living Faith, A, Bru- a Blueprint for Living Faith. Because the book of James, and we covered some territory last week, and I'd encourage you that if you weren't here um, to jump online, it's on our YouTube um, site page thing, it's on Facebook as well. You can have a listen to that message, and I'd encourage you to do that because it really was a broad brush um, introduction to the book, as well as then the first eight verses. And we saw a couple of things, and I just want to touch on them as we start today. The first thing was that unsurprisingly, the book of James is written by a man named James. And that James, it is pretty evident, is the half-brother of Jesus. And we commiserated last week how hard it would have been for him to have a perfect older brother um, and, and the difficulty that must have been. And what we know is that during his Um, during Jesus's ministry at least, um, James didn't accept that Jesus was who he says he was. So James um, was part of the family who thought Jesus had gone a bit mad. Uh, They were um, often um, looking on in in disbelief. Um, And instead, we see this remarkable transformation happen because we read um, uh, that, that Jesus, after Um, the resurrection actually appeared to James and in that moment James's life was completely and radically transformed and so the the message of the book of James actually comes from someone who has experienced a transformed life who has known a, a, a way of living away from God and has been dramatically transformed into this new um creation this new um person And so the book of James really has a simple message. And that simple message in the book is that James over and over and over again implores each one of us that knowing Christ should spark a new way of living. That when we know Christ, that we we should actually live in a different way. And so he talks about the fact that our words and our thoughts and our actions should look different to our life before Christ. They should look different to the world around us, people who don't know God. And now that is something that's easily misunderstood. And I promised last week we would come to this in week five of this series. So that's motivation to stick around. Week five of the series, we're going to confront one of the main criticisms that can come up when we look at books like James, which is that there's this sense that as soon as we talk about the way that our life should look, that somehow we're preaching a works gospel. We're saying that if you want to be saved, then you need to do these things. And James doesn't preach that at all. James is saying that once you have come to know Christ, once your life has been transformed by His grace, then live these ways. So it should be that our knowledge of who God is and what Christ has done for us should propel us to live a different way. 
And so we saw that last week in the first eight verses of the book of James, he confronts some really, really real stuff. Because he talks about the fact that in the Christian life, there will be troubles. He doesn't say there might be troubles. He says there will be troubles. But he talks to us about the fact that in these troubles, we can have joy because God is actually working on our faith, making it stronger so that we will be able to endure. We also saw that God is good in the midst of these things. That when we go to him, seeking him for wisdom, that he will give it to us. And isn't that an incredible promise from his word? And so we're going to um, jump straight into verse 9 today um, and work our way through the next section of the text. And so if you want to turn your Bibles to James chapter 1 and verse 9, let's pray as we open God's word. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Father, we pray that as we open it up now, Lord, that you'd speak to us. Holy Spirit, that our minds would be um, open, that our hearts would be receptive, and that we would hear from you today. Because it is your words that bring change to our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen. And so in the first uh, part that we're going to read today, James writes this, Believers who are poor have something to boast about, for God has honored them. And those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. They will fade away like a little flower in the field. The hot sun rises up and the grass withers. The little flower droops and falls. And its beauty fades away. In the same way, the rich will fade away with all of their achievements. Seems that he goes to a bit of an odd spot here, doesn't it? He's been talking about troubles and trials and saying that when you face those things, seek God for wisdom and he will give it to you. And then he launches into this almost poetic summary of the rich and the poor. And you might notice some words there that jump out to you that look familiar. They look familiar because there is 21 topics in the book of James that are also covered in the most famous sermon of all time, which is the one that Jesus preaches in Matthew 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And so James comes back to a number of these things. You see, it shouldn't surprise us that James shares so much similarity with that message because the Sermon on the Mount is really about a transformed way of thinking. And that's what James is writing about too. And he's been talking to us about transforming our thinking in a couple of things. You see, in verses 2 to 4 that we covered last week, he says, reconsider your trials. Reconsider your trials. Reconsider how you think about them. Instead of letting them ruin you, count them as great joy and let them grow your faith. He tells us to reconsider in um, verses 5 to 8 that we covered last week, reconsider your prayers. So we often pray, God, get me out of this, but it's actually, he's saying, pray, God, give me wisdom. Help me to see the purpose of this. Help me to understand. Help me to endure. And then he tells us to reconsider something else. Remember, this is about a, a different way of thinking. He tells us in verses 9 to 11 to reconsider what we value. You see, there's a contradiction here, and it's a contradiction that we pick up in Scripture that is a complete contrast to the way that our society is built. It's a contrast because he says that people who are poor should boast because God has honored them. People who are poor should boast because God has honored them. You see, he's saying, reconsider what God values. Reconsider what God values and realize that it might not be 
It probably isn't, and I can say in this society it isn't, what the world values. Reconsider what God values. He's saying to those of you who don't have much, remember the incalculable riches that you have in Christ. Remember that though you might not have much wealth, many possessions, don't prize those things, don't get pulled into striving for those things because that's what the world says. Instead, God has honoured you wherever you are and however much you have when we seek Him instead. And he says, on the other hand, that the Christians with plenty have to reconsider as well. And I would suggest to you that for most of us, this is more pertinent. Some of us do struggle with with what we have and, and the amount we have and we struggle to get through week to week and, and that is a reality for many but for many of us in this society we actually have quite a lot. We have more than we would ever uh, admit to having probably. You see when you look at those statistics we're in the top like percent in the world in terms of possessions and wealth and he's saying to those people to those who have lots, you need to reconsider over and over and over again the things that you have. You need to reconsider the money, the house, the cars, the boats, whatever it is that you have. Reconsider those things, realizing that they are here now, but tomorrow they might be gone. I always think of that first time you get a new car and you take it to the shopping center of car park and it gets its first ding on it. You see, that beauty of the showroom didn't last for very long, did it? We, we don't um, necessarily have to worry about the dings. We just worry about the first time we put our kids into it. I, I, um, we were taking the kid seats off the other day, and um, I said to the person getting in, you could probably eat a meal off the back seat. There was that much food there that the kids had left. But those things, they fade. The things that we put value in, the things that we strive towards, they fade. And James is saying this. He's saying, don't put your emphasis, don't put your value on on those things. Reconsider them and instead be generous in your giving, be generous in your lending and realize that pursuing the riches that are found in Christ is what will actually transform your life. That is what will make the biggest difference. And he goes somewhere interesting next. If you look at Verse 12, he says this, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. You see, he starts this section by saying, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. You see, this isn't a lovely like hallmark card a quotable quote just to make you feel better. It's a reality of the way that God sees you. This word um, blessed means that you are favored by God. So those of you who are going through times of trial and times of testing, James writes and God's word says to you that you are blessed, that you are honored by God, that as you patiently journey through these times of difficulty as you patiently journey through them, that you are genuinely blessed by Him. I want to say to you this morning that that might be a reality that you have to keep reading, that you have to keep praying, that you have to keep speaking into your life and into your circumstance. Because we, as we see that, as we journey through those things with you, your testimony, it blesses us too. And that's the richness of being in community. That as you continue to face those things and keep striving and seeking God, 
the impact that that's having on the lives of those around you um, can often not be measured. And what a blessing that is. And so he continues on in verse 13. And remember, when you are being tempted, do not say God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us um, and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. I want to draw a couple of things out of these. And if you're taking notes this morning, the first part that comes out of this section of the text is that temptation often follows trouble and testing. Temptation often follows trouble and testing. You see, it's no accident that James has spent time at the start of this message, uh, sorry, the start of this passage, talking about troubles and trials and that they will come. But now he says, he starts talking about tempting. Remember when you are tempted. You see, there's a distinction here. Often times of trouble come from the outside. They are often circumstances that surround us that we are caught facing. It might be a job loss or it might be um, um, sickness in your family or it might be a dramatic financial change or it could be whatever it is. They often come from the outside, but here we read the temptation comes from the inside. You see, he writes there in verse 14, temptation comes from what? Our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. It's often during those times when we are facing trouble and trial that temptation comes. I don't know if you've seen that in your own life, but we talked last week about trouble, particularly really significant troubles, often do one of two things. They drive us to God or they drive us away from God. And it's actually up to us to determine how we'll respond to those things, whether we'll press into God, whether we'll press into community, whether we'll surround ourselves with that support or whether we'll run from it. And it's often when we run from it that we then find ourselves in seasons of tempting as well. And I want to take you, you can turn there if you like, but we're only going to race through it. There's some really clear examples of this in Scripture. You see, back in um, Genesis 12, um, in verse 1, God speaks to Abram and says, you probably know it, leave your native country, your relatives, your father's family, and go to the land that I am showing you. And in going, God gives him this promise, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and I'll make you famous and you'll be a blessing to others. And not long after that, we see Abram goes and he goes into this new land that God has promised to him. And what happens there is that all of a sudden there is drought, there is famine, there is not enough food there for Abram to feed his his livestock. So he goes from God's promise into a season of trouble, into a season of testing, and we read very clearly what happens. He doesn't recall God's promise and say, God, you brought me here, so I'm going to trust that you are going to do what you've promised to do, and I'm going to stick it out, and I'm going to keep reminding you of that promise. Instead, he doesn't do that. He runs to Egypt. You see, the temptation to try and fix his own problem was there. And so he runs to Egypt and we see that in Egypt he faces some more temptations uh, for his own safety and he makes some really, really significant mistakes. You see, the promise came, he followed it, he pursued God, he faced a season of trouble and trial and after that came temptation and he fell into it. You see the same story, you could go to any part of the Old Testament really and you'd see the same story in the story of the Israelites as they pursue God you know we, we talk about how they left 
um, Egypt. It wasn't that long after God saved them miraculously from Pharaoh and brought them out of captivity. And what are they saying? Oh, this is hard here. Take us back. We actually had it better where we were. You see, the temptation comes and it turns us to sin. You see, the the problem there, and, and Abraham faced it, the Israelites faced it, we face it, is that more often than not, our temptation comes to try and fix our circumstance. The temptation comes to stop trusting God where we once relied on Him, where we once remembered His promise to replace those things with some temptation, with some, uh, I guess, control of our own lives. We're trying to fix it ourselves. The other thing that James is doing in these passages is he's not just reminding us that temptation often follows trouble. He goes a step further and he actually gives a really clear um, understanding of what temptation is. In verse 13, he says that temptation doesn't come from God. Now, we would all say, well, of course. Like, isn't that, that's probably a given. But yet James needs to say it because it seems apparent that there were some perhaps who were suggesting that um, God had caused that temptation. You see, we're very good at blaming our mistakes, the sin that comes after temptation. We're very good at blaming that on everyone except for ourselves. I'll take you back to the Garden of Eden. What happened? Adam and Eve, they sinned. And what did, um, what did Adam say? Adam said, it was the woman that you gave me. It was her fault. And then Adam comes in, and uh, sorry, Eve comes in and she says, well, no, it was the serpent. It was the serpent's fault. You see, that pattern has continued. We continue to shift responsibility. And I think people still do it today. And they do it in a couple of ways. You might hear some people say that, you know, God's bringing this into my life. God's bringing this into my life and he's cruel because he's not helping me. That's absolute nonsense. God is not bringing those uh, sinful desires into your life. That's not how God operates. You might have heard other people say, um, God has made me this way. Particularly those with with, um, ongoing problems, maybe it's something like an anger issue. We often say, well, I can't help it because this is the way that God made me. This is how I respond. This is how I react. Well, no, that's not the case. uh, James tells us that it is not God who is causing you to be tempted. How often do you see a meek, mild and gracious Christian turn into an absolute monster when they get behind the steering wheel? I have seen it so many times. Do not nudge your spouse. Um, That might be something you can talk about in the car on the way home. But I have seen it time and time again. What is always the thing is, It was their fault. They cut me off. The reason I've gone from being caring and loving to hoping that person crashes and damages their car or gets pulled over by the police is because they did it to me. It's their fault. We are so ready. And James says, temptation doesn't come from God. He says in verse 14, and this is the second part of this summary of temptation, it comes from your own sinful nature. And we all carry these desires. I mean, I've listed a couple this morning. Our desire for control, to take charge of everything, to be able to sort and organize, to be independent and not have anyone telling us to do. That is part of our sinful nature. We have this desire for self-indulgence. 
there is so much of that in the world around us that the most important thing for you is for you to be happy, for you to have the things you need to make you happy, um, which is always material wealth or pleasures or whatever it is. That is the most important thing in your life. That is part of our sinful nature. And the other part, I mean, one of many is this struggle that many of us have with pride. This idea of self-promotion, the desire to be recognized and to be important and to be considered as such by others. And James is making this point really clearly and he's echoing what Jesus said back in Mark 7 to the Pharisees. There's this great exchange and you can have a look at it this week where the Pharisees are coming and they're doing this ceremonial hand washing so they don't put uncleanliness or sin onto their food and then eat it because they're worried that somehow eating food that's touched uncleanliness um, will make them sinful or make them wrong. And, and Jesus says to them, it's not what you put in your mouth, it is your heart. It is your heart. You see, temptation comes from our sinful desires. And then we read that temptation has a process, it entices us and it drags us away. You see, we manage to convince ourselves that what looks good is good. And, and that's the way that tempta temptation works, is it draws us in, it lures us in, and then it leads us away from God. And he says this in verse 15, that it, temptation, if we indulge it, that it turns into sinful action and then that action unchecked leads us to death. You see, temptation itself is not the sin because we read that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. We all know that, don't we? Jesus was tempted in the wilderness and he didn't indulge it. Instead, he turned to God and he never sinned. And often we are tempted too and it's when we allow that temptation to turn into action and when we allow that action to be unchecked in our lives, to become not a once-off mistake, but to become our default, our pattern of living, that's when we're replacing the Lordship of Christ with this sin over our lives. We're displacing Him as ruler of our lives and we're putting sin in its place. And James clearly tells us that the end result of that is death. That where there is sinful living without repentance, where there is temptation that turns into action that is completely unchecked and goes on, that the result of that is death, it's separation from God. It's pretty grim, isn't it? For, for all of us who are sinful people who are made right by a loving and gracious God but still struggle with that temptation, with the desires of the flesh, but this is where James brings some hope and it's the last section we're going to quickly look at this morning. He says, Don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God, our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. He chose to give birth to us by giving us His true word. And we, out of all creation, become His prized possession. There is a pathway that James gives us out of temptation. That when you are tempted, there is a couple of things that I want to take you through this morning as we close. The first thing is that when you are facing temptation, remember the goodness of God. When you are facing temptation, when those thoughts start ticking away in your mind, when you feel that the temptation is enticing you, remind yourself repeatedly of the goodness of God. 
You see, over in 2 Samuel, this is where um, we get the impression that this is where David tripped up because the prophet Nathan, after David has sinned with Bathsheba and, and is, has caused Bathsheba's um, husband to be killed, um, and, and Nathan, the prophet, comes to him and confronts him in it, and he says to him, um, I um, anointed you king of... Uh, this is what the God, God is saying. I anointed you king of Israel. I saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms. And if that had been not enough, I would have given you much, much more. You see, Nathan is saying, David, why did you stop remembering God's goodness to you? Why did you stop remembering the things that he had given you, the things that he had done, his protection, his provision? Why did you not remember those things? Because in not remembering them, you were so easily enticed by something that you thought would fulfill you, but was actually hollow. And so he's telling us to go back to the God who is good. He's also telling us to return to the God who doesn't change. In seasons of trouble, just the same as probably Abram faced. What had he forgotten? That God was good. That God didn't change. That the God who promised him something was not now a different God who had changed his mind. But instead, God is immutable. That God doesn't change. It's just a big word for saying God is consistent. And that's where James talks about um, that God doesn't cast a shifting shadow. You see, we tend to think God's love for us waxes and wanes because that's how we operate love, don't we? It comes and it goes and um, it's strong one day and then the next day we're tired and we're angry and so it's a little bit less. But he's saying that God's love doesn't change for you regardless of your season, regardless of your um, doubt, regardless of your trouble or your trial, regardless of your temptation, God's love for you is guaranteed. And so I want to leave you with this one final challenge this week. I want you to mull over this. Because I would say to you this morning that we mustn't fall into the trap as a church and as individual believers, we mustn't fall into the trap of pretending that we're not tempted. Christians are really, really good at that. We're really, really good at pretending that we've got it all together. We're really, really good at pretending that we are holy and righteous, uh, that we're the most um, faithful, faith-filled person on our row. Um, if you're sitting on yourself today, that you've certainly got that title. But we, we're good at doing that. We're good at turning up to church events and small groups and um, church on a Sunday and pretending that we're not tempted. But James writes, just like he talked about troubles, remember he said, not if, but when, he does the same thing about temptation. He doesn't say, if you are tempted. He says, when you are tempted. And so the question is not for us, will I be tempted? It's, how will I respond when I am? How will I respond when that enticing nature of the world of sin creeps up in my life? How will I respond? And so I want to encourage you, let's not turn up on a Sunday and if you're visiting us this morning, we are not a group of people who get together and pretend we've got it all together um, because we really don't. We're working it out, we're journeying through faith and through life and seeing God grow us and it's an incredible thing. But I want to encourage you this morning, when temptation comes, James gives us this really key model. He says, remember that it's enticing but it's hollow. He says, remember the consequences of it. 
Remember the consequences of handing yourself over to sinful living. But he also then says, remember the goodness of God. Remember that God is good and he loves you. And you just need to seek him and he will provide you with the wisdom and the comfort that you're looking for. Let's pray. Look, God, we thank you that uh, your word is real. Lord, we thank you that we can't open it up and think that it's irrelevant, that it doesn't apply to our lives. Because here, God, um, through the power of your Holy Spirit, James has written these passages that deal with our reality now. They deal with the tempting that we face as we are surrounded by a sinful world and as that sinful nature fights within us to take control. Lord, we thank you that we don't have to allow that temptation to turn into sin. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the fulfillment that comes through knowing you. Father, we pray that we wouldn't be a group of people who turn up to church things or connect with each other and pretend that we're not facing those things. Lord, that we would be open, that we would be honest about our temptation. And in doing that, Lord God, that we would um, be opening up for others to support us, to encourage us, and also to be vulnerable with us too. Lord, give us wisdom to be able to encourage and equip one another. Lord, give us wisdom in our own lives to be able to see the hollowness of temptation, to be able to see the hollowness of sin and to come seeking you in the midst of it. Lord, we pray that this morning. Lord, we pray as we continue this series, Father, that you keep working with us. As we saw last week, Lord, that this series in James is calling us to spiritual growth. Father, make us hungry for that. Make us hungry for lives that reflect your goodness. We thank you for that.